Hi, it's Ken White. And it's Josh Barrow, and this is Serious Trouble. Uh, So, Ken, Alec Baldwin this week in somewhat less serious trouble than he had been in previously. Yes, uh, in uh, maybe as much as five years uh, less serious trouble. Is it five years fewer serious trouble or less? Five years less because a year is a continuous variable. And you have four and a half years or four and a quarter years, etc. That's more or less the answer I expected. Uh, (laughs) So, uh, yes, uh, we talked last time about how we... I had uh, run a comment from a public defender uh, who pointed out that the new shiny gun law the prosecutor was trying to use to tack on a five-year sentence on him had an ex post facto problem. It wasn't passed until after the incident for which he's being charged. And uh, Variety picked that up, and then Alec Baldwin's defense attorneys picked that up, and now the DA, surprisingly, has conceded that they're wrong about something. Is that surprising? I mean, it's it's I, it seems like this issue was pretty straightforward. You can't try someone under a law that wasn't under the books when they committed the act that you're trying them for. And the DA's statement uh, about withdrawing this enhancement is, is kind of weird. It's very salty. The DA said to Variety, in order to avoid further litigious distractions by Mr. Baldwin and his attorneys, the district attorney and the special prosecutor have removed the firearm enhancement to the involuntary manslaughter charges and the death of Halnia Hutchins on the Rust film set. The prosecution's priority is securing justice, not securing billable hours for big city attorneys. I mean, to call it a litigious distraction that your lawyers pointed out that the law Law that they charged you under was, does not actually apply to you seems uh, that th- there's a lot of gall there. Well, you have to understand uh, how prosecutors and particularly state prosecutors conceptualize the system and things like constitutional rights. Uh, <laughs> you know, they're a barrier to the administration of justice. So it is litigious to be bringing up things like the ex post facto clause or the Constitution <laughs> or you know the rule of law and that type of thing. It's the sort of thing that big city lawyers do as opposed to simply, you know, implementing justice, which is what DAs do. So that type of extraordinarily <laughs> whiny, petulant, frankly, childish type of response is more or less par for the course. Yeah, I mean, it's it's funny to me to describe a criminal defendant as litigious in any context. I mean, normally you think a litigious person files a lot of lawsuits. They, you know, they, they try to create a lot of litigation. If you are charged with a crime, you're in litigation whether you like it or not. Sure. I mean, you can be a litigious defendant and file a lot of bogus motions and tons of paperwork. And sometimes big firms do that as part of the way of grinding down the prosecution, which despite having enormous uh, resources may not have tons of people in this one case ready to do all this motion practice. But this is just whiny. This is – Unbecoming, yeah, and and notably, by the way, a similar motion also from Hannah Gutierrez Reed, the uh, the armor on the film, uh, does not have quite the same, uh, you know, big shot, big city attorneys that Alec Baldwin has, but you know, had the same legal position uh, and received the same uh, removal of the of the effort to seek the uh, the enhancement against her. Well, of course, and and bear in mind that one thing that's happening here is special pleading by the DA to the jury pool. That when you come in and hear this case, remember it's a big liberal uh, with a whole bunch of expensive big city attorneys, so make sure to react accordingly. But isn't that – I mean, isn't that unethical to speak to the jury pool before the before the case is started? 
Uh, well, yes, but again, we're talking about state prosecutors here. Yeah. So this is the way they conceptualize the world. There's them and then there's the bad guys. I mean, again, Santa Fe, a pretty liberal jurisdiction itself. I think the narrative here is going to be more about Alec Baldwin being a, you know, a big shot Hollywood actor who came in here and is, you know, is causing all of this trouble in New Mexico rather than an especially political angle. But I, th- I think you're, you know, certainly the big city attorneys thing is there. Well, I mean, DAs are a different culture than the city they are embedded in, <laughs> uh, as you could tell if you've ever had to wrangle with uh, the DAs in Manhattan or in San Francisco or someplace like that. They are a vastly more conservative culture, and they are playing to the more conservative elements of their local community, which always exist. Let's talk about defamation suits that have been brought against Fox News and various related entities and people uh, by two voting machine companies, Smartmatic and Dominion. Uh, there were a number of conspiracy theories that got quite a bit of air on Fox News about how these companies had allegedly rigged the 2020 election, used algorithms in their systems uh, to flip votes from Donald Trump to Joe Biden, claims that they were backed by Hugo Chavez, who, of course, was dead uh, for many years at the time that uh, that the election took place. And uh, while Smartmatic has certain Venezuelan roots, Smartmatic also only provided voting equipment to Los Angeles County, which was not really relevant to the outcome of the general election. Dominion Voting Systems, which did provide voting equipment used in much of the country, including in various key swing jurisdictions, has no ties whatsoever to Venezuela. So anyway, you had a lot of these lies that got a lot of air on Fox News. And we've had significant moves in litigation in both of these cases in recent weeks. Uh, The Dominion stuff particularly has gotten a lot of attention. Why don't we start with Smartmatic? So Smartmatic in some ways has the simpler case here because Smartmatic was just so completely unrelated to the 2020 election. Before you even start talking about what Smartmatic machines do and what their software does, they just they weren't involved in the vote count in any of these places. And so they've sued Fox Corporation, Fox News. They sued a number of personalities, including Lou Dobbs and Maria Bartiromo. Uh, and so there was a, a trial court and it dismissed some claims and now there's been an appellate decision that actually restored some of the claims that Smartmatic is pursuing. Right. The Smartmatic appellate decision went badly for Fox in general. And like you said, Smartmatic was only involved in this election in Los Angeles, which was not a swing state area, uh, just so we're clear. And uh, the trial court here had dismissed Smartmatic's claims against some of the defendants uh, and some of the claims against, for instance, Rudy Giuliani and others. On appeal, though, the appellate court restored a lot of the dismissed causes of action against some of these defendants, uh, saying basically that, uh, well, this was enough to claim to articulate that they said false statements of fact and that they alleged adequately that uh, they knew these things were false or that they were reckless about them. Probably the more significant part of it was almost a throwaway sentence at the end of the opinion. And this was actually something where you were right, Josh, because something you expressed skepticism about. The question was, is Smartmatic a public figure or a limited Hmm. purpose public figure? Remember that in defamation law, if you were a public figure, 
then the plaintiff has a higher burden to prove uh, that they've been defamed. You, mm-hmm. you have more freedom to talk about a public figure. If it's a public figure, uh, they have to prove that you lied about them with actual malice. Uh, and what the court said – actual malice means that either you knew the thing you said was false or that you spoke with reckless disregard for the truth. Right. And reckless disregard meaning deliberately looking away from evidence that what you were saying was false. So what the court says here in a really throwaway line uh, is that uh, they're not inclined to find that Smartmatic was a a limited purpose public figure. And a limited purpose public figure is when, you know, you're not uh, Joe Biden or Tom Hanks, but for the purposes of this topic, you're public. Mm -hmm. And so we've been talking for a long time about whether or not these giant companies are public figures for these purposes. And I was kind of thinking that a court would find that they are, but this court has said, no, they they don't see that here. So that means that the burden of proof uh, that Smartmatic has against these Fox people is dramatic. Dramatically lower. It's going to be much easier for them to prove uh, defamation unless uh, they come up with evidence that they're a public figure, uh, a Fox does in defense, then they're not going to have to show actual malice. So it's just that they have to show that the statements were made negligently. Is that the standard? Yes, that'll be the standard if uh, the court finds that they don't need to do anything, uh, that they don't have any evidence here of them being a limited purpose public figure. How do you think about whether a corporation is a public figure? I mean, we sort of, I think, have intuitive ideas about whether a person is a public figure or not. Is it just about whether people have heard of the company? It's not just that. It's whether or not so – for whether they're a public figure at all, the test is sort of whether they're widely known and recognized in all fields. So that's the case for, say, Apple or Amazon, not so much the case for Smartmatic, which mm-hmm. I'm sure the vast majority of Americans hadn't heard of before the election in 2020 and probably – a plurality still haven't heard of. Mm-hmm. Um, limited purpose public figure means that they're known within people talking about this subject matter. And so there, there's a test that has some element of intentionality into it, whether or not this person injected themselves into a controversy and deliberately played the media game. But sorry, is, is the subject matter here, is the subject matter election administration or is the subject matter whether the 2020 election was stolen? Because I, I could imagine that, you know, people who are county clerks and who have jobs where they buy voting machines, maybe a lot of those people have heard of Smartmatic. But if we're just talking about if the subject matter is, was the 2020 election stolen? And we're talking about people who are who would discuss that. Those people presumably have not heard of Smartmatic. Sure. So it's not not entirely clear how this court is thinking about it, but we have a hint by the one case they cite for the proposition they're not convinced Smartmatic is a limited purpose public figure. So they they cited a 2021 case in uh, involving the singer Kesha, who had been sued by a music producer who accused her basically of making up terrible allegations about him to retaliate against him. This and, is Dr. Luke. Right. And so uh, the court said uh, Dr. Luke didn't invite public attention to influence the public before the incident, didn't voluntarily inject himself into public controversy, didn't assume a position of prominence in the controversy, and didn't try to maintain or control media access. So he's not a limited purpose public figure. Those were the kind of the factors. And all those have an element of intentionality. That's weird to me because Dr. Luke is famous and was famous before these allegations. He's a very successful, very prominent music producer. Like, I I find it sort of shocking that it would be the case that Dr. Luke could not be a public figure. 
Well, so in that case, they found that he wasn't a regular public figure and the matter in dispute was whether he was limited purpose. And so that then the limited purpose would be it's not about whether he's a public figure in music production. It's about whether he's a public figure in sexual abuse. Well, or, or in general. So, uh, but, but for which limited purpose? Oh, the the limited purpose of did this, he seek attention about whether about the controversy about the controversy? Right. Okay. So here, the uphill battle would be: it really doesn't seem that Smartmatic or Dominion sought out publicity and media about the controversy. It was just completely manufactured by the right, and they were kind of dragged into it. And so then, would this tend to bode well for Dominion, for the idea that Dominion could also avoid designation as a public figure? I mean, Dominion provided voting equipment in a lot more jurisdictions than Smartmatic did in the United States. Is that a factor that could make it that Dominion is a public figure, even if Smartmatic is not? It's a positive sign. Uh, Dominion's case is in Delaware rather than New York. Uh, The cases are slightly different, and they don't seem to be, as we'll talk about, they seem to be leaning into the idea that we don't care. We can prove actual malice. Well, I mean, we we had Tom Clare, who's one of the attorneys for uh, Dominion on on All the President's Lawyers many years ago at this point to talk about this litigation pretty early on. And at that time, he said that they, they were not going to admit that they at, at least at that moment that they were a public figure. He made a, he made an argument to us at the time and it's an argument that you're seeing over and over again in these filings uh that they can show actual malice on the part of Fox News and various uh, employees of Fox News. But at the, at the time he's you know he wasn't conceding that they're a public figure. That's true. I think here there are policy reasons to think about when we're talking about defamation law about whether or not corporations that do public business um, that accept public money, whether mm-hmm. or not they should be treated as private figures for purposes of defamation law. I think there are policy reasons and free speech reasons to have a standard that tends to treat them more as public figures. But uh, the way this is going, uh, it appears that Fox may not be able to demonstrate this, at least for Smartmatic. Yeah. Let's talk about the Dominion filing. So Dominion has filed a motion for summary judgment. Basically, they want to win on various claims that they've made before even going to trial. And one one thing that you and I have been discussing as we've been preparing this episode is that it's it's relatively unusual for a plaintiff to file for summary judgment. Usually defendants file for it to try to dispose of a case. But it's a very aggressive move for the plaintiff to say, I have such a strong case that much of this doesn't even need to be tried. It is an aggressive move. And it's lucky, Josh, because, you know, what we've been hearing from our fans is what they want more of is uh, deep dives into civil procedure. So <laughs> l- let's remind everybody about what a motion for summary judgment is. A motion for summary judgment is saying more or less, we've done the discovery. There's no real factual dispute. Even if you look at all these facts in the best light for them, we win. Mm-hmm. Okay. The standard is there's no genuine dispute of material fact, that is, no real dispute of relevant facts, and under the law, we should win. So usually it's the defendant who says that. You know, they say that, uh, you know, there's no witness saying that the light was red uh, when I drove through the intersection. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you lose. Here it's the plaintiff saying it, Dominion and sort of a power move coming through and say, look at this mountain of evidence that shows that 
all these crazy things that these Fox people were saying about us were false. And those are things like they rigged the election, that their algorithms manipulated the vote counts. Uh, they're owned by a company that was founded by Hugo Chavez to rig elections in Venezuela, and that they paid kickbacks to election officials. These are the four big lies that mm -hmm. they cite. And they say, here's this mountain of evidence that all that's false. There's no evidence it's true. Uh, in addition, here's all of the evidence that they acted with actual malice, that they knew these things were false or at least recklessly looked aside from evidence that they were false. So they don't exactly concede that they're a public figure. What they say is, even if we are, mm -hmm. we've got the evidence and there can't be any dispute that this was actual malice. Is this a strong motion for summary judgment? Now, I realize it could be that you don't win or lose on the whole thing. There are all these individual pieces on which you might or might not get summary judgment. We saw this with Elon Musk, where before Elon Musk had that big win at trial in that shareholder lawsuit, uh, the plaintiffs who were suing him actually managed to prevail on some portions of their motion for summary judgment. They were another plaintiff that sought summary judgment, and they got a judge to rule that various statements that Elon Musk had made were, were false and that he at least spoke recklessly when he made them, didn't end up doing them a lot of good when they ended up, they, they couldn't prove all the other elements they needed in the, in the eyes of the jury. But so in, when you look at this motion from Dominion, does this look like they're going to get summary judgment on some of these things? So likely Dominion's motion can't be parsed and, and broken into pieces the way Musk's would. Summary judgment works differently in different jurisdictions, and there's some procedural quirks. So sometimes you can ask for what's called summary adjudication, which means, you know, if they've got 10 claims, just just one of the claims, knock it out. You can even sometimes get a summary judgment on an issue within a case. And that's kind of what happened in Musk's case. Here, it's more a traditional motion where I think either defamation survives or it doesn't survive. So mm -hmm. it's, it's more a big on-off switch. It's not going to be... I'm uh, sorry, survives, but this is the plaintiff's motion. So either so, either they prevail or it's Either they right? prevail uh, or don't prevail. Not so much that, okay, you've, you've proven falsity, so that's no longer an issue in the case. Mm -hmm. um, it's an uphill battle, Josh, because uh, remember the way summary judgment works is that if there's any dispute of relevant fact, then the person moving loses. Mm -hmm. So, you know, to go back to my analogy, if I put in 10 declarations from people saying it, the light was green when I went through and the other side has one declaration from a blind career criminal, uh, <laughs> they still win the motion. Um, so it's going to be tough. But the arguments that Fox is going to have to make here are going to be difficult. And sometimes the reason you bring a summary judgment motion is tactical uh, as opposed to because you think you'll really win. First of all, on a very gross level, it's hugely expensive to either make one or oppose one. So mm -hmm. you are really punishing the other side. The paperwork required for this is voluminous. It's got all sorts of ticky-tacky requirements. It takes forever to do. There's this mm -hmm. thing called the separate statement of facts that is just, thank God I have associates. I make do it now because it's just <laughs> soul-draining experience. So there's that. Then there's the fact that this is a great motion to draw the other side out before trial. So when you make a summary judgment motion, the other side has to oppose. They have to articulate their facts and their legal theories. They have to mm -hmm. come forward with their evidence that they're going to use. And so you know what their argument's going to be on the key points that you're focusing on. Mm -hmm. And finally, uh, it's a public relations battle sometimes. And that's one where here I think Dominion has 
completely kicked ass in, in the public relations war because they got great coverage for days for numerous news cycles over how strong this evidence was and how all these people at Fox knew that these things that were being said were ridiculous and crazy and that they were upset about them and, and all this type of thing. So even if they don't win the motion, mm-hmm. and I think it's an uphill battle too, um, they're going to win the war. Well, the other interesting thing with the the PR aspect of this is one element of this motion describes financial motivations that Fox may have had for airing claims that they knew were false or that they recklessly disregarded information about the falsity of. And it's basically that after the election, you have Fox News executives and personalities freaking out about viewers being angry about being told that Donald Trump has lost. They're also particularly angry. Fox got out on this limb and called Arizona, frankly, earlier than they should have. They, you know, everyone was focused on these blue shifts that Pennsylvania counted in-person votes first, and we knew that there were going to be outstanding votes for Joe Biden. It was the opposite situation in Arizona. The late votes that they counted in Arizona were Republican, and Fox News and the AP, which called states separately from other news organizations, basically, I think, misunderstood what the nature of the outstanding vote was in Arizona. And they ended up being right. Joe Biden did win Arizona, but not by very much. Uh, and it was it was too early to call it when they did call it. So you have their Fox News out on a limb saying that Joe Biden has won Arizona when even, you know, liberal NBC won't say that. And so you have these you have these very angry viewers, you have viewers who are turning to Newsmax or to One America News Network, and you have these these statements from executives and from personalities like Tucker Carlson who are freaked out about what this means for Fox's business. You have Tucker Carlson literally complaining that the stock price is falling um, because of these problems that they're having with, with viewers, and establishing a financial motive for why they would need to sort of chum the waters with this stuff that is red meat, to mix a metaphor, for their, um, for their viewers. Uh, various statements from executives about the need to respect the audience, which is weird because they're basically talking about how our viewers believe all of this nonsense and they're also our customer and we need to respect them. I'm interested in that's obviously this is a very important public relations point um, because it makes Fox News look very irresponsible. And, and particularly Dominion has PR goals here that aren't just about getting back at someone who was mean to them. Dominion's reputation has been damaged. And to the extent that they can show that someone was lying about them for a reason, that may help burnish their reputation and convince elections officials that they continue they should continue to buy Dominion voting systems equipment. How important is that argument legally here? Because at the end, they use this financial motive stuff as, as supporting evidence for the idea that there was actual malice. But media organizations that are for profit always have financial incentives for why they report what they do. Is that a strong argument to say, well, they were saying this about me to make money? Not really. Motive is not an element of this. Uh, Whether they did it to make money or they did it because to use the legal term, they're a gigantic bag of dicks, Uh, (laughs) whatever it is, um, the question is whether you can prove they knew it was false or they were reckless about whether it was false. Mm -hmm. So motive is sort of an indirect way of proving that, proving it by inference. You can believe that they knew it was false because, look, they had these reasons to do it even if it was false. But it's not direct proof of -hmm. knowing it was false. It's more kind of color commentary. It's part of the PR war to do this. So, no, it's not, you know, motive is rarely an element of offenses, uh, of crimes or or torts unless there's a specific intent requirement. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, not not here. Yeah. 
would that matter for damages? I mean, one thing that's not really discussed at, at, at any length in these proceedings is is damages, because I guess we're too early for that. At the end, I you know, if you if we get into a jury trial uh, and if Dominion prevails here, uh, then there will have to be a discussion basically about how much Dominion deserves to be compensated and how much Fox needs to be punished. Does this sort of stuff matter for establishing damages? It absolutely matters to a jury, so particularly if punitive damages are on the table. Mm-hmm. So if when the jury is assessing how much to punish a defendant with punitive damages, the fact that the defendant was motivated by profits is certainly going to weigh on their minds, and it's going to be sort of a rhetorical tool uh, with which to persuade them. If, if what they care about is money, let's hurt them with mm-hmm. money. Uh, so – It'll be relevant at that point. And then again, it's very relevant for the PR battle that's going on along with the legal battle. Uh, Let's talk briefly about there's another motion for summary judgment, and it comes from Fox Corporation. Now, there's a a number of entities that are being sued here, uh, entities and and people. Um, And so you have Fox News, and then you have Fox Corporation, which is a company that owns Fox News. And Fox Corporation has filed this motion basically saying, I would like to be excluded from this narrative. And it says, you know, whatever happened here, it was not done specifically by Fox Corporation. It's not good enough to point out that we own Fox News. You have to show that personnel of Fox Corporation were directly involved in, in directing the decisions that, that were made here that you're suing over, and you haven't done that. What do you, what do you make of this motion? It's a, it's a strong motion. And, uh, you know, we, we talked earlier about the Smartmatic appellate decision there. The Court of Appeals said that, yeah, uh, Fox Corporation should have been dismissed because uh, you didn't allege adequately that they were somehow involved. Uh, mm-hmm. A parent corporation isn't automatically liable for the actions of its subsidiary. I mean, that's the way corporate America works. That's why you have subsidiaries to mm-hmm. isolate liability and, and manage risk. So here they're saying basically that the Fox Corporation people were not the decision makers, didn't drive the coverage, didn't uh, direct any of the coverage. And um, that's uh, a relatively strong argument for Fox. It worked in the Smartmatic case. It may work in the Dominion case. So when we're talking about Fox Corporation executives, we're mostly talking about Rupert Murdoch and, and Lachlan Murdoch would be who, who would be Fox Corporation personnel. And there is a little bit about this in the motion for summary judgment from Dominion, where they say the evidence discussed extensively herein includes specific reference to knowledge of falsity for Rupert Murdoch, Lachlan Murdoch. They also named Raj Shah and Viet Din, who are also executives at Fox Corporation. They say further that uh, the evidence demonstrates editorial responsibility for at least Rupert and Lachlan Murdoch. And there's a little bit of of traffic with people talking internally at Fox with Rupert Murdoch about various things. And then Dominion says, Dominion will discuss additional evidence for Fox Corporation on editorial responsibility and actual malice in subsequent briefs as appropriate. So that sort of basically says, you know, TK, TK, we're going to have more on this. So I assume they get to respond to Fox Corporation's motion for summary judgment. They'll have to flesh out more why they think it is that Rupert or Lachlan or, or other people at Fox Corporation really really ought to be a party to this? Right, because everyone knows what the other people are going to move, uh, what they're going to ask for. A lot of the time, you have to meet and confer first and pretend to try to resolve the dispute and, and that type of thing. <laughs> um, so, yes, they're anticipating making the main argument in opposition to Fox's, Fox Corporation's brief. They probably realize it's not the strongest part of their case because, remember, they have to show – um, not just they have some evidence, but that there's uh, – if, if they want summary judgment 
in Dominion's favor, they would have to show there's no doubt that mm-hmm. Fox Corporation is on the hook, that there's simply no dispute of fact about it. And Fox Corp is at the least going to be able to create a dispute of fact about that. Right. So what would be the reason? To, I mean, I assume the usual reason that you want to sue a parent company is that the parent company has much greater financial resources than the subsidiary. In this instance, Fox News is a very large, profitable subsidiary that has deep pockets on its own. What's the reason that you would also need to bring this seemingly weaker claim against Fox Corporation? You bring it for leverage uh, because uh, to the extent you have them on the hook and you're inconveniencing their executives and all that sort of thing, you have more leverage on the other side. Uh, You do it to make discovery easier because if they're a party, that eliminates some of the uh, barriers that Fox News is going to try to bring up. Oh, well, you know, now you're trying to get documents from our parent company. That's something totally different. Mm-hmm. If the parent company's a party, then that's much easier. Right. So uh, those are the basic reasons. Finally, let's talk a little bit about uh, SPF because uh, we, we talked last week about some issues about his, his VPN, uh, which he was using to watch NFL games for some reason in his parents' house. I mean, don't they have cable? But so anyway, shortly before we, we taped that episode, there was actually proceedings in court with Judge Lewis Kaplan talking about this stuff, which was interesting in part because it, it sort of seemed like Judge Kaplan thought that the government was being too lenient on SPF about some of these tech issues. Is that, is that unusual for the judge to basically seem to want the prosecutors to take a more aggressive stance? It's not unknown. And, and first of all, we have to accept responsibility that's possible. Although there's really a question for the philosophers that we caused this. Because as you know, when we talk about a subject when we're recording, <laughs> things tend to develop about that subject simultaneously. Yeah. So uh, leaving for the philosophers and the physics majors whether or not we caused it to happen. <laughs> yes, Judge Lewis Kaplan was miffed, mm-hmm. um, which is, you know, on a uh, crazed rampage for normal humans and mildly annoyed for a federal judge. <laughs> uh, and he was mad and he was basically suggesting, mouthing off, saying that maybe I should just take this guy back into custody. Maybe Maybe I should revoke his bail. Um, I'm not sure if I buy this thing where he didn't realize he was using a VPN. If there's anyone here who understands what a VPN is, it's your client. Uh, (laughs) I was saying things like that. He was uh, saying, why am I being asked to turn him loose in this garden of electric devices, (laughs) which is a classic federal judge comment. And yeah, so... You know, Josh, we've talked for years about how federal judge rhetoric is sometimes like, you know, the dog barking on the other side of the fence. It doesn't necessarily mean the dog's imminently going to attack something. It may just be sort of the dog being the dog. Um, There's an element of that here, just the federal judge sort of venting his spleen. But also, certainly, I think the federal judge senses that uh, Sam Bankman-Fried got a pretty good deal for bail, Mm -hmm. um, given the sort of charges he's facing and given that he's you know, being called responsible for the fraud and the billions with a B of dollars. And I think he's getting the sense. I mean, the judge thinks he that based on things that have happened in the past, he may have tried to tamper with witnesses. The judge clearly doesn't buy the excuse that he didn't realize he was using a VPN. And the judge is asking the USAs, you know, you know, where's your backbone, guys? Well, and so what, what does explain the choices of the AUSAs here? Well, we talked about this when he initially got bail. And remember, this was a stipulated bail. Uh, it was a deal they made between uh, the Justice Department and Sam Beckman-Fried's lawyers. I think the most likely explanation is that 
first of all, they came to a deal to get him come back from the Bahamas without uh, the extradition process, which they would have won eventually, but which could have dragged out for a bit. Second of all, they probably wanted to make the case uh, go faster and be more nimble because particularly with a complex white-collar case, it's super difficult to have uh, the defendant in prison because it's very hard to work with the client as a defense lawyer. Everything takes much longer. You can expect things to drag on for many months or years mm-hmm. longer. And finally, and we talked about this, from a prosecutor's perspective, a Sam Bankman freed on Bail is like an an engine of incriminating evidence. He's just (laughs) consistently making the case worse for him, saying stupid things to incriminate himself, probably saying things that lead them to evidence they didn't have before. Uh, You know, it's it's just, you know, it's like uh, he's like a bank robber who you let him out on bail, robs more banks. Uh, So, well, that's kind of funny because, I mean, Lewis Kaplan sort of seemed to suggest like, you know, one problem here is that Sam Bankman Fried might have been committing new crimes like witness tampering, whereas maybe the perspective of prosecutors is, hey, maybe Sam Bankman-Fried is committing new crimes like witness tampering, and that makes our case easier. <laughs> right. So I, I think the prosecution sense is likely that he's not going to be committing new crimes like, you know, shooting people or dealing heroin. But or, he, or, or even launching a new uh, crypto exchange that will then fraudulently lend customer assets to his own hedge fund that will then lose the money. I think what prosecutors are thinking instead is that we've got – a series of crimes with fairly elaborate intent requirements that we have to prove that are really complicated. And this guy, the more he runs his mouth, the easier he makes it. So let's let him run his mouth (laughs) in the environment that's best for that and make our case easier. Lewis Kaplan is 78 years old. He keeps coming up in the news. He has a remarkable number of high-profile cases, I mean, including some that we haven't even discussed, like the the civil case that Anthony Rapp brought against Kevin Spacey over over a claim of, of sexual abuse. I, if I were 78, I would want to be on a beach or something. It's from, I mean, you talk about him, you know, seeming getting quite agitated in court. Why don't these people retire? Well, first of all, for federal judges, 78 is like 45. <laughs> uh, so there's a strong tradition of federal judges and many state judges serving until very late. They have the opportunity to um, go senior and reduce their duties and basically choose how much work they're going to do and what type of cases to take. Uh, but which, men- which, which Judge Kaplan has done, but he, he seems to be maintaining a very active workload based yes. on how much he's in the news. So many of them, you know, this is their life's work. This is what gives their life meaning. So they keep doing it. Many of them, it's a sense of public service. Many of them, it's a sense that, you know, they'll die if they just go home and, and don't <laughs> do anything uh, or their spouses will kill them or, or whatever it is. Some federal judges, uh, you know, arguably stay on too long past the point when they're in their prime. But many uh, federal judges in their 70s and even 80s uh, do a good job and bring a lot of experience uh, to the role. So 78 is not even a little unusual for a federal judge. Uh, Why don't we leave it there this week? Uh, Listeners, you know where to find us. Go to SeriousTrouble.show. If you're a paying subscriber, you can uh, go to the show page for this episode and uh, join the live. lively comment thread that we hope will uh, will form there. And you can also email us. Ken, what's the email address where people can contact us? They can contact us, Josh, at ricohotline at serioustrouble.show. Yes. So if you would like to tell 
Alec Baldwin's attorneys how to do their job. Yes. Or if you would like to do real legal research for us uh, to uh, educate us on things, uh, drop a line. And of course, go to SeriousTrouble.show. We would love to have your support as a paying subscriber. This has been a free episode, and we, we do a lot of these free episodes. But for paying subscribers, you get at least 40 episodes a year and the full episode in, in weeks where we put only part of the episode out for free. Uh, so you can go to SeriousTrouble.show. Again, that's $6 a month or $60 a year. And when you, when you do that, you get all of our episodes. You get access to those comments, and you also make it possible for us to produce this podcast. Serious Trouble is created and produced by Very Serious Media. That's me and Sarah Fay. Jennifer Swadek mixed this episode. Our theme music is by Joshua Mosher. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you next time.